0: Okay, welcome to, to uh, tonight's public lecture, Preventing Financial Meltdowns. Uh, in this lecture, Tim Harford, the author, radio presenter, and newspaper columnist, looks at the lessons we can learn from the financial crisis and how the collapse of Lehman Brothers has caused parallels in disasters such as the Three Mile Island and Deepwater Horizon. This lecture marks the launch of Tim Harford's new book, Adapt, How Success Always Starts With Failure. Tim Harford uh, is a member of the Financial Times editorial board. As you may know, his column, The Undercover Economist, which reveals the economic ideas behind everyday experiences, is published in the Financial Times and syndicated around the world. He is also the only economist in the world to run a problem page, The Are Economists, in which readers' personal problems are answered tongue-in-cheek with the latest economic theory. His first book, The Undercover Economist, has sold over a million copies worldwide in almost 30 languages. His second book, The Logic of Life, has pu- was published in the early 2008 and in English and has also been widely translated. His, and his third book, The Undercover Economist, is a collection of the The Economist columns. He presented the BBC series, Trust Me, I'm an Economist, and now presents the BBC radio series, more or less, he is a frequent contributor to other radio and TV programs, including The Colbert Report, Marketplace, Morning Edition, Today, and Newsnight. He has been published by the leading magazines and newspapers in the world, including Esquire, Forbes, Wired, New York Magazine, The Guardian, The London Times, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. team, and the team for more or less, won the Royal Statistical Society's 2010 Award for Statistical Excellence in Broadcast Journalism, and the 2010 Mensa Intelligence Award. In 2011, Tim was named one of the UK's top 20 most influential tweeters by the Independent newspaper. <laughs> Tim also won the 2006 Bastiat Prize for economic journalism. Before becoming a Twitter, a writer, Tim worked for Shell and the World Bank. He is currently a senior business fellow at Cass Business School and Nuffield College in Oxford. He lives in London with his wife and two daughters. Um, he will be available for book signing um, after the lecture, and please join me in welcoming him to the lecture.
1: Thank you very much, Ignacio. So, it's great to be here. Thanks very much for turning up. I realise this is exam season, uh, so uh, it's great to get such a good turnout. Now, I'm. Um, I'm actually giving seven talks about the book uh, over the course of the week. Uh, yesterday, I, I spoke about problem solving in a complex world at uh, the RSA. Tomorrow, I'm talking about backing long shots in innovation at the Royal Institution. Uh, on Thursday at Cass Business School, I'm talking about management lessons from the war in Iraq. I'm also giving lectures in Oxford and Cambridge. So. Uh, The idea is, uh, on each of these evenings, to talk about a different idea from the book, which is uh, a book all about trial and error. Today, in a sense, I'm going to talk about the most awkward subject for somebody who advocates experimentation and risk-taking, which is this this awkward business of the financial crisis. So I wanted to tell you the story of of my thinking process about this and and how I came to... uh, To understand a little bit about why the crisis came about uh, and what we can do to prevent a future one. And I started by studying a a mini financial crisis which was called the LMX spiral. It was an insurance crisis on the Lloyds insurance market and the LMX spiral took place in the late 1980s and it sounds all very familiar. So the reason there was an insurance spiral was because there were very um, small and reasonable alterations made to the standard way of uh, insuring risk. So, there's this long running uh, insurance contract called a reinsurance contract. And reinsurance has a, you know, a very uh, respectable history and a perfectly legitimate uh, business reason. The idea of reinsurance is you have a big risk. You're insuring this risk. You don't think you could pay if this risk actually manifested itself. So you're insuring the space shuttle from blowing up. You're not sure you've got enough money as an insurer to insure the whole space shuttle. So you find somebody else who's willing to take some of that risk and they write what's called a reinsurance contract. It's a perfectly reasonable way to conduct business. So on the Lloyds Insurance Exchange in the late 1980s, there'd be this very small modification made to reinsurance contracts which was that instead of reinsuring a particular risk, that the space shuttle blows up, you reinsure the whole exposure of another insurance syndicate. And that sounds, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're spreading risk to where it can most be born in the system. We've all heard these sort of statements made about derivatives contracts more recently. Okay, so what happens? Well, insurance syndicate A experiences a loss has a bad year. Now all the, all the unusual losses, all of those over the insurance limit, are then passed on to insurance syndicate B. Now insurance syndicate B has had a bad year for no reason other than it's insured insurance syndicate A, which has had a bad year. So now insurance syndicate B has had a bad year. Fortunately, it also has a reinsurance contract. So it will pass that reinsurance on to syndicate C. Now insurance syndicate C has had a bad year. For no reason other than Insurance Syndicate B had a bad year, which had a bad year only because Insurance Syndicate A had a bad year. So who's going to insure Insurance Syndicate C? Well, it turns out that it's absolutely fine that they do have a reinsurance contract, and it's with Insurance Syndicate A. (laughs) So now you have a problem. And I'm told by lawyers who worked on this case that the bits of it are still being ironed out over two decades later. So I thought well that's an interesting it's sort of, sort a of mini insurance crisis, a mini financial crisis. I want to sort of understand how that worked. So I started reading up on it and the first thing that I did was to read up about the event that triggered the crisis. And this happened 23 years ago almost to the day, it was July. A couple of engineers were working on a, a backup pump on the largest oil and gas platform in the North Sea. And at the end of their shift, this, they hadn't managed to fix this pump, and it was still lying in pieces. And you can't work long, long shifts on an oil rig, uh, it's not safe, it's a dangerous environment. So they had to finish their shift, and they had to report that this pump was basically still in pieces, it was unusable. So they went to the control room of the oil rig, but the control room of the oil rig was very busy, everyone's handing over shifts, it's all a bit sort of chaotic, and the, um, the controller was on the phone. So they wrote out what's called a permit to operate, that indicates that you can't switch on this secondary pump, it's not safe. And they left it on his desk, and they went to bed. Three hours later, the primary pump on the rig failed. Now, the rig's controllers then looked for a reason why they couldn't switch on the secondary pump. And for some reason, it's not entirely clear why, uh, they weren't able to find this permit. So they didn't know any reason why the secondary pump couldn't be used, they switched it on. Immediately, high pressure gas leaked out and after a couple of seconds it exploded. Now, the problem with this particular rig, which was called Piper Alpha, was that it had originally been designed as an oil rig and oil is flammable, it's not terribly explosive so you put up uh, fireproof walls you don't put up blast walls because you're not expecting explosions however the rig was then retrofitted to pump gas and the gas explosion that took place simply knocked down the firewalls and disabled the control room Okay, now what would then happen? Well, you're in the North Sea. You're surrounded by cold water. So, what you want to do is you want to suck up huge quantities of seawater into this machine. It's a vast thing, an oil rig. It's huge quantities of seawater, and you just want to douse the blaze. But it's not as simple as that, because oil rigs have divers working on them all the time, it needs constant maintenance. So you can't just have a, a seawater pump with a huge inlet switch on because somebody burns the toast. You suck a diver in and you'll kill him. So you need somebody to flip a switch and say, no, this is actually a real emergency. We really need the seawater pumps to operate. Where's the switch? In the control room. The control room's out of action. So nobody can switch on the seawater pumps. No one could call the other oil rigs that are pumping oil and gas towards Piper Alpha to tell them to stop. No one could coordinate a rescue. And because everything on an oil rig is interconnected with everything else, every explosion ruptures another pipe containing hydrocarbons, releases more gas. The explosions get bigger and bigger and bigger and before long there's a fireball engulfs Piper Alpha that is half the height of the Eiffel Tower it not only kills a lot of people on the rig it even kills people in a boat nearby trying to approach Piper Alpha it kills people who have jumped 10 stories off the rig into deathly cold waters who have been hauled out of the waters been rescued, they think they're safe but they're not far enough away from the rig when there's this explosion it killed 167 men Fifty-nine people survived. Many of them had made that ten-storey jump. It was impossible to approach the rig, and after a couple of hours, the accommodation block, which is a sort of mini hotel attached to the rig, simply slid off the rig to the bottom of the North Sea. And the rig burned for three more weeks. It was just a betrayal of this enormous mass of steel and engineering. It just looked like a bunch of wilted flowers by the time the whole thing had finished. As I read this account of what had happened at pi alpha I realised this is the system that I needed to understand. I didn't need to look at an insurance spiral. I needed to understand how these very tightly tightly coupled complex systems, industrial systems, operated. Because maybe that would tell me something about what went wrong in the city, what went wrong on Wall Street. So I I called up safety experts, I called up psychologists, sociologists, engineers who studied these industrial process accidents. And they had absolutely no doubt that, that this was the right course of action. So James Reason who's a psychologist at the University of Manchester said look I've been talking to the banks for decades about risk and they keep thinking I'm talking about banging shins. In the end they realised what a risk was. It came with a name, Nick Leeson. 1995 blew up Barings Bank. It was 300 years old. Nick Leeson is actually a case study in one of James Reason's books on organisational accidents. I mean, it, this book is mostly read by engineers. It's read by people who work on sort of big petrochemical f- facilities. And Nick Leeson is a character. It's a case study. So James Reason was sure that you know there was a connection here. There was something worth exploring. I spoke to Charles Perot, who's a sociologist at Yale. Um, Perrault wrote a wonderful book uh, in the beginning of the 1980s about Three Mile Island uh, and Bhopal and, and other you know, huge industrial accidents. Um, he anticipated Chernobyl. The second edition of the book, published at the end of the 1990s, has the image of uh, the Challenger shuttle exploding. I mean, there has been no shortage of accidents then or since and Perrow's book was called normal accidents and the idea in Perrow's book was there are certain kinds of systems that you just will blow up and you can't stop them sooner or later something is going to go wrong with one of these systems hence the phrase normal accidents so well what are the properties of an accident prone system Perot identified two things so the first thing is complexity. Now, I talk, I talk about complexity all the way through this book. Complexity is just a feature of the modern world. We, we have an incredibly sophisticated economy. We have an incredibly sophisticated society. And so throughout the book, I advocate trial and error. I advocate experimentation. It's the only way to solve problems. I talk about it in development. I talk about it in climate change, innovation, even in uh, military. But there's a second feature of these dangerous systems, Uh, which makes them far less friendly to experimentation. And that feature is what Perot calls tight coupling. So the London School of Economics is a complex system. All kinds of small things, you you set up a new school, or you you alter the way tuition fees work, or you alter the way that tenure works, or you alter immigration rules, will change slowly but surely, They will change the way London School of Economics operates. But you can experiment and adjust. But on the School of Economics is not tightly coupled. Uh, dominoes are tightly coupled. So if you imagine the, sort of the huge kind of row of... I'm not talking about dominoes when you're playing a game of dominoes. You know, I'm talking about a row of, of uh, dominoes for those domino toppling events that you see on the, the evening TV news and you flick the first domino and they all go. That's tightly coupled. It's a tightly coupled system. You can't easily interfere and stop it happening. It's not straightforward to do that. Um, a loaf of bread rising in the oven is, is also tightly coupled. Um, if you, if you, you know, proof the loaf and you get it all going, and you put, I'm not an expert baker, and you put the yeast in and you bung it in the oven, and after 20 minutes you decide, well, actually, um, it's going to be ready too early, or you've got to pop out and do something else. You can't take it out of the oven and just stop the process there. You know, there are biochemical processes that have started that cannot be stopped. It's a tightly coupled system. So what Perrault says is fine, you can have a simple tightly coupled system like a loaf of bread or dominoes, that's fine. You can have a complex but loosely coupled system like the London School of Economics, that's fine. But if you've got a complex and tightly coupled system, you have a problem. And Perrault writes about tightly coupled complex systems such as nuclear reactors in his book He said to me, well, Tim, the financial system exceeds the tight-coupled complexity of any nuclear power plant I ever studied. These are insights we have to take on board. So if we did take this idea seriously, if we said, OK, safety engineers are the people to consult about what went wrong in banking, what are the lessons that we might learn? So... I mean, one is that safety systems themselves do not always work the way you might hope. They bite back. So there's a wonderful article by a couple of engineers written about 15 years ago uh, called No Good Deed Goes Unpunished, and it's all about safety systems causing the problems they were supposed to prevent, you know, fire caused by fire alarm, explosion caused by explosion suppression device, There's this sort of thing. Um, and that they, they give one of, one of the early examples of, of one of these safety systems going wrong is, um, was discovered by Galileo Galilei so in 1638. So Galileo's idea was he wanted to understand um, why marble columns kept splitting in half. So this is the engineering problem of the day. You make this great big marble column because you're going to build a town hall or a, or a church. And... You're not ready to use the marble column, so where are you going to put it? Um, well, you, obviously you would lie it on the ground. But if you lie it on the ground, then it's going to be stained by the soil. And that's not that's not a good look for a kind of Parthenon thing. That's not what you want. So you need to protect it from the soil. So what, what would you do? Well, the obvious thing would be to prop it up. So you, you create a big sort of pile of rocks or pile of wood here and another one here. And you lay the column between the two of them. But As you may know, columns are, marble columns are not very strong in that situation. They're very strong in compression, but you've put them into tension, and these things would tend to snap in the middle. What do you do then? Well, perfectly simple. You've got a new reinforcement. You have a new element of the system. You put a middle pile underneath the column. Then you've got three piles, and that is bound to make the system work better, right? This reinforcement, that's a fail safe. It turns out it didn't help at all. It did not reduce the failure rate of the columns. Because what would happen was the two columns you'd first put up would settle under the weight. And it'd settle and settle and settle. And then your column would be on the middle one like a seesaw and it would snap like that. So Galileo was just pointing out that this doesn't necessarily solve our problem. Adding this extra reinforcement, adding an extra layer of precautions makes the system more complex. It may or may not make it safer and in this particular case it didn't make it safer. Okay so that's a simple example. Let me give you a a, a more spectacular one. The Fermi reactor near Detroit. Jill Scott Heron who died last weekend has this great song and we almost lost Detroit this time. That's about a near nuclear meltdown in the Fermi reactor near Detroit which the regulators later said nearly killed 75,000 people but actually didn't kill anybody because they got on top of it. What happened there was this reactor seemed to be behaving in a very unpredictable way. Uh, it, was, it was too hot, pressures in the reactor core were too high and no one really quite knew why, what was going on and they were trying to sort of cool this thing down uh, and it was just getting hotter and hotter and hotter and pressures going up and up and up uh, and it was beginning to melt down and they just couldn't figure out what was going wrong with it. They managed to stabilise the system. They managed to cool it down. It took about a month. And at the end of the month, they got this long, 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 long sort of um, robot arm. And they sent in a, a camera. And then they sent in a claw. And what they spotted on the camera looked like a crushed beer can had blocked... The, the drain where the coolant was supposed to sort of flow through, cool down the reactor core, and then flow out of the bottom of the reactor vessel to be you know, reused and cooled down. It had been blocked by this beer can. Um, so Homer Simpson, on the loose. <laughs> but it turns out it wasn't a beer can. When they actually managed to send in this claw and pull it out, it wasn't a beer can, it was a crushed bit of zirconium filter. And the zirconium filter had been installed at the express request of the Nuclear Regulatory, Regulatory Authority and it had been knocked loose by a swirl of high-pressure coolant because this coolant's at over a thousand degrees centigrade under pressure so it's still liquid and it's uh, under this tremendous pressure it, it knocks loose this filter that is a safety device the filter falls blocks the uh, the coolant from leaving and the reactor starts to melt and the uranium starts to run together and then it gets harder and harder and harder to control you've got a partial meltdown so that was a safety system that caused the partial meltdown of the Fermi reactor at Three Mile Island the whole Three Mile Island disaster was triggered by a safety system it was actually no problem at Three Mile Island except some bozos shot compressed air into the wrong system they were trying to clear a blockage and the compressed air triggered a safety device said there's a problem the whole secondary coolant system in Three Mile Island was shut down And then at at which point there's basically no way to cool down Three Mile Island. And there were many, many, many failures after that. But the initial trigger was a safety system. See, the the lesson that safety engineers have produced is, well, these safety systems are all very well, but you can have this Rube Goldberg-esque accretion of more and more and more safety systems. And all you're really doing is making the system more complex, more unpredictable. You're introducing what engineers call new failure modes. New ways for things to go wrong. Okay, fine. Well, what's that got to do with the financial crisis? Well, let me introduce you to a safety system uh, that was widely admired five years ago, called the credit default swap. It was developed in 1994 by J.P. Morgan. Um, they had some risk on their books uh, from Exxon. It was a kind of it was an agreement to loan money to Exxon if Exxon needed it, which they probably didn't and if Exxon did need it then Exxon obviously would probably pay it back but still you know maybe they would pay maybe they would take this money and maybe they wouldn't pay it back so there was a risk and the regulators said to JP Morgan well you have to make sure you keep capital because there's this possible risk on your books so JP Morgan they, they, Exxon's a good client so they don't want to annoy Exxon and withdraw this line of credit but they're basically sitting there having to cope with the fact that you know maybe one day Exxon might need this money but they probably don't meanwhile they're having to keep dead capital on their books not earning any money so they went to somebody who had a load of money and wasn't doing anything useful with it, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and (laughs) they they, they said to the EBRD well you know can we write an insurance contract with you so that just in case Exxon ever do take this money, and just in case they never pay us back, which of course is never going to happen, but just in case, will you, are you good for the money? And EBRD said, well, yeah, sure. So, JP Morgan pay EBRD, EBRD are happy, they've made some, made some money, Exxon are happy, JP Morgan are happy, the regulators are happy, the regulators signed off on all this. No, the entire aim of this transaction is to get around a regulatory requirement. The regulators say, yeah, that's fine. And actually, It's not that crazy. I mean, it's not completely unreasonable. You know, they had this risk. They insured the risk with somebody who was able to pay. So now they've offset the risk. Well, you know, they can do more with their capital. It's not crazy. It's a safety system. Of course, the first thing that economists will tell you about any safety system is that safety systems make people do dangerous things. John Lanchester, in his book, Whoops!, uh, describes the idea, Oh God, it's like Wall Street dis- you know, discovered airbags and then they started taking up drunk driving. Well, <laughs> if you talk to an economist, an economist will tell you that's exactly what people do with airbags and seatbelts. So it's called the Peltzman effect and uh, it's, it's well documented that people do drive in a riskier way if they feel their cars are safer and pedestrians are the guys who who take the hit, literally sometimes. So, yeah, so, so Wall Street's saying, well, yeah, we've got this we've got this insurance and now we can, we can take more risks because we've got the insurance and the regulator is saying yeah damn right that's exactly what you can do. Yeah, this is the agreement. So partly the problem with the safety system is it makes people take more risks and so there's no reason whatsoever to expect the system to be safer. The system You're just able to drive faster metaphorically speaking. The second problem though I mean the, the, that first problem was widely recognised I think. Maybe not emphasized enough before the crash, but since the crash people have been talking about it. There's a second problem that's much less widely acknowledged. Those credit default swaps made the system more complicated. They introduced a new failure mode. It's like suddenly there's a new way to break the column in the middle. Uh, Suddenly there's this new thing swirling around inside the nuclear reactor which might block the coolant thing, something we didn't have to worry about before. In the case of credit default swaps, here's how it works. You're a bank in, say, um, Omaha, Nebraska. And you have a portfolio of assets. And you don't want anything to do with that dodgy subprime stuff over on the West Coast. You are not interested. It, you don't understand it. It looks pretty, pretty dubious to you. So um, you don't want anything to do with that. So you've just got your portfolio of assets. However, um, you could insure that portfolio with a credit default swap, and then it would be safer. Well, who wouldn't want to be safer? So, you go to an insurance company, AIG maybe, or um, just saying. Or you go to a monoline insurance company, somebody like AMBAC. No one's ever heard of AMBAC. They're very, very boring. Now, they insure your portfolio. Now, they are triple A rated. They're super, super safe. The regulators say, well, your portfolio is insured. If there's a problem with your portfolio, then this insurance company will pay you money. And this insurance company is AAA rated. So it stands to reason your portfolio should also be AAA rated, right? So the bank in Omaha says that's great, fine, no problem. Glad we're doing our, our job right. Then one day, the whole subprime mortgage market blows up. And you get a call from AIG or AMBAC or whoever's insuring your bonds. And they say, we're sorry, um, the, credit, the credit rating agencies have just downgraded us. And that means that your portfolio has just been downgraded. Remember, it was AAA because we were insuring it. Well, we're not AAA, so your portfolio is not AAA. So suddenly this bank in Omaha is saying, well, so you're saying suddenly my portfolio is more risky, but my portfolio has got nothing to do with subprime. This, and, and the whole thing, this was supposed to make me safer. So you realise... Yeah, you were all roped together for safety. That's great if one climber slips. If half the climbers fall off the cliff, the fact that the other half are roped to them is not helpful. <laughs> it's not a safety system anymore. So the, the safety system introduced these new failure modes. And suddenly, failures popped up in places where nobody expected them. And suddenly, this bank in Omaha is being told by the regulators it has to sell these assets because it's taking too many risks. Like, what risks? <laughs> Well, it's just a safety system. The risk was to buy some insurance. It's taken too many risks. Now it has to sell these, sell these assets. Well, that's okay. We can sell the assets. And then it discovers every other bank in the United States is also selling the same assets for the same reason. Because they've all got the same insurance. So the system is far more tightly coupled than we expected. And the safety system is partially responsible. Collateralized debt obligations. These clever packaging and repackagings and repackagings of subprime mortgages—another safety system—they were designed to make the system safer. I've done the maths on some of these things. the The basic point is, they make the interactions extremely unpredictable. So, you, your, the risk of the underlying risk of a mortgage default—maybe you thought it was five percent, and now it's ten percent. Okay, fine, five percent, ten percent. I mean. That's a mistake, okay, but still, it should be manageable. Then you realise because of the way the debt is repackaged, in the repackaged version, your risk hasn't doubled, it's gone up by four times. And unfortunately, the repackaged version has been repackaged into a double repackaged version. And the risk of that one has gone up 16 times. And actually there's a triple repackaged version and the risk of that one has gone up 256 times. And actually there's a quadruple repackaged version. And I'm not making this up, this is really true. And the numbers are are roughly accurate. The quadruple repackaged version is 65,000 times more risky because the initial risk was underestimated by a factor of two. These are the kind of unexpected interactions you get when you introduce these clever seeming safety systems into finance. So this is the sort of thing that simply would not have been that surprising to safety engineers looking at the financial system. So if more and more safety systems are not the answer for making finance safer, well, well, well you know, what is the answer? One of the things I did while researching this chapter was to call the head of nuclear safety at the International Atomic Energy Authority. He's a guy called Philippe Jamais. I spoke to him about a year ago. And he told me all the things they would learned from previous nuclear accidents, he told me all the things he was still worried about. By the way, all the things he was still worried about basically turned into, he was worried about two things. Floods, earthquakes. Yeah. So they were paying attention. They were paying attention at the IAEA. Um, so I asked Jamais, I said, what did we learn from Three Mile Island? He said, well one of the things was the guys operating the power plant at Three Mile Island were absolutely, totally lost. They had no idea what was going on. So you imagine you're in th- you're at Three Mile Islands, 1979. It's four o'clock in the morning. You're incredibly sleep deprived. There are 100 alarms going off in the control room. You've got a printer, a telex sort of like a telex machine that's printing out system statements about problems with the reactor. It ta- it's three days behind, okay? Because so many error messages are coming through, the printer can't cope. You're, trying to, you're looking at lights. Now, some of these lights are green lights and some of them are red lights. Now, you might think green means fine and red means a problem. But it turns out green means cl- uh, open or on, and red means closed or off. And so half of the green lights are supposed to be green lights, and half of them are supposed to be red lights. And half of the red lights are supposed to be red lights, but the other half are supposed to be green lights. In addition, some genius has decided, wouldn't it be a good idea if the panel for reactor B was the mirror image of the panel for Reactor A, because it would look cool when you walked into the room. <laughs> so now all the guys who normally work on Reactor A move over to Reactor B and all the switches are backwards, all the lights are the wrong way round. It's 4 o'clock in the morning, the, the light, everything's sounding. The, the controls for the elevator system are in, one of these lights is, you know, the elevators are working. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Uh, one of the key errors at Three Mile Island was there was a maintenance, a maintenance tag obscuring a light that was saying, by the way, there's a, there's a problem over here. <laughs> maintenance tag's obscuring it. Another problem was there was a, a valve open at the bottom of um, Three Mile Island reactor core, superheated radioactive water, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, is jetting out of the bottom of the reactor. Um, now, how can water get to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit? Well, it can if you put it under enough pressure. But as it's coming out, it's flashing into steam and it's radioactive. It's, it's not a good scene. 32,000 gallons of this stuff are voided before they figure out what's going on. Because this, this valve is it's like the valve on a pressure cooker. It's supposed to snap shut, but it sticks open. But their control panel tells them that it's shut. And the reason the control panel tells them it's shut is because it doesn't actually measure whether it's shut or not. It measures whether you sent it a signal to shut. So they press the button, they sent a signal to shut. It didn't actually shut, but nobody told them that. There are many, many errors based on the simple ergonomics of this thing. Now, they've tried to learn these lessons in nuclear power. So I visited Hinkley Point, which is this ageing nuclear reactor on the Somerset Coast. And one of the things they were most proud of, they've got a huge simulator room. It's a, a perfect replica of the control room of Hinkley Point. So you can practice all kinds of interesting things, and there's just a supercomputer pretending to be a near supercritical nuclear reactor. Uh, and you pr- you know, you're, all the buttons are there, all the lights are there, and you just practice, and you can be observed, and you can, you can do all this training. And one of the things they're most proud of in this simulator room, when it's, it's a duplicate of the main control room, is they've got simple um, colored borders around switches because this is one of the problems of Three Mile Island. So this switch refers to this light and is connected also to this switch and this light and this switch and this light and they're all just surrounded by a nice little blue rectangle and next to it there's a sort of green L-shaped one because all of these things are basically referring to the same thing. They introduced this idea in 1995 they thought it was a tremendous contribution to safety because it just helped the controllers of this very complex system understand what was connected to what. And so what's the connection there between Three Mile Island, between Hinkley Point and uh, high finance? Okay, so here's another situation where an incredibly sleep-deprived person didn't have the right information he needed to make a decision. Okay, halfway through Andrew Ross Sorkin's book Too Big to Fail, Tim Geithner, He's Treasury Secretary now, he was head of the New York Fed at the time, he's responsible for regulating the banks. He's just flown overnight from Basel where they're doing Swiss banker things and so he's shattered. He's just been on the phone for an hour to Dick Fuld of Lehman Brothers. It's Tuesday, Lehman Brothers is going to cease to exist on Sunday evening and everybody knows there's a problem so Geithner is exhausted, he's under tremendous pressure. And this guy comes in, he wants a meeting, this guy um, called Bob Willemstadt. And Bob Willemstadt is the head of some insurance company called AIG or something. And <clears throat> AIG is not regulated by the New York Fed, it's regulated by the Treasury. So this is basically nothing to do with Geithner. He doesn't really, uh, he's not an expert on AIG. And Bob Willemstad comes to him and he, he keeps Bob Willemstad waiting for a long, long time because he's on the phone to Dick Fuld because Lehman Brothers is melting down. And Willemstad comes in and says to Geithner, I need access to the Fed's discount window. In other words, I kind of need some soft money. I need a little bailout. bailout." And he doesn't want to scare Geithner. He doesn't want Geithner to nationalise AIG. He doesn't want Geithner to go to the markets and say AIG is bust. He just wants a bit of help. Geithner's tired and he doesn't know why this man is talking to him. Because he's worried about Lehman Brothers. And eventually, um, Willemstadt gives Tim Geithner this piece of paper with lots and lots of tiny, tiny writing. And somewhere on the paper is a, it says AIG has insured $2.7 trillion of derivatives contracts including $1,000 billion of derivatives contracts with the 12 most important financial institutions in the United States. So if we go bankrupt, all this insurance that we're supplying to all of these guys is going to disappear. So, and Willemstadt leaves... So Geiger looks at, you know, all the writings just sort of swirling in front of him. He puts it in a desk drawer, he picks up the phone to Lehman Brothers. He did not have the information he needed in a form he could use. It's fascinating, when you talk to regulators now, they really want to fix this. They know that when Lehman Brothers collapsed, they just didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know the likely consequences of that collapse. It was too unpredictable, they just didn't know who was exposed. They didn't know what was going on. So they're now talking about trying to build much better maps of interconnections in the financial system. So that then, when a future Tim Geithner has to make a decision, he's going to have more information to work with. Now, that I think is going to help. It is not going to solve the problem any more than those nice coloured outlines that save Fukushima from meltdown. I mean, you, there's only so far you can go with better indicators. But the Dodd Frank reform bill, by the way, or Dodd Frank Act now, has a substantial chunk of money set aside to try to to draw up these better indicators. So, what else can you do? I mean, part of the problem is the sheer complexity of the system. So, there's, there's only so much you can do with with trying to understand the system on a macro level. A person who knows that as well as anybody is a guy called Tony Lomas. So, Tony Lomas is sitting in a Chinese restaurant. Um, on a Saturday night in, in Essex I don't know why but that's where he was he gets a call from Lehman Brothers Europe and this is about three days after that conversation between Bob Willemstadt and Tim Geithner and the, the head of finance at Lehman Brothers Europe says um, look we might go into bankruptcy um, they're trying to figure something out in New York they're actually spending all weekend doing that rather than paying attention to AIG but that's another point um, but we think we want a plan B because the rescue might not work. Could you pull together a team and, and bring it into to Lehman Brothers at Canary Wharf? The reason they called Tony Lomas is because Tony Lomas, at PricewaterhouseCoopers, was the country's leading expert on corporate bankruptcy. And his team had dealt with the European bankruptcy of Enron, who were famous for their you know, fancy derivatives contracts. So, Tony Leomas pulls together a team, he goes into Canary Wharf uh, on the Sunday, and none of them see their families again for about two weeks. One guy parked his car in the short stay car park at Canary Wharf, and it just sort of ticked up this enormous bill, which is sort of one small contribution to the $120 million worth of fees um, that the auditors accrued trying to figure out what was going on in Lehman Brothers. Because this was the most almighty mess. Uh, the the Price Coopers auditors, started, come, bankruptcy specialists, started coming in, thirty-first floor, and they started multiplying like tribbles, and they're just—they're just trying to figure out how Lehman Brothers ticks. So there are these beautiful works of art on the wall that are sort of being moved aside and replaced with just diagrams indicating who's sitting at what desk. There's dozens and then you know, hundreds of of bankruptcy specialists from Price Waterhouse Coopers just settle on Lehman Brothers trying to figure out what's going on there's a board meeting on Monday morning 5 a.m. where they agree that yes Lehman Brothers is going to go into bankruptcy (coughs) then it goes to a judge two minutes before the London markets open the judge signs over he says yes Lehman Brothers is bankrupt and at that point the bankruptcy specialists and the Lehman staff have to sort out this almighty mess because Lehman has no money They can't pay their phone bill, they can't pay their electricity bill, they can't pay the cooks, they can't pay the cleaners, they can't pay those nice traders who are responsible for clearing up this mess. Lehman Brothers is responsible for about one-eighth of all the trades in London and one million derivatives contracts are open at the point where Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt. They're all just swinging in the wind. And these bankruptcy guys are just following Lehman Brothers staff around. It's like, okay, you tag him, follow him around, figure out what he does. (laughs) At one point, Tony Lomas is shown this diagram of Lehman Brothers' uh, organization chart. He says, this is the most incredibly complicated thing I've ever seen. And the Lehman Brothers guys say, oh, sorry about that, because that's just a simplified summary. Because the complexity of these organisations just defies belief. Much of it's for tax reasons. You know, it's sort of, you can create a spin-off here and a spin-off here and it's 10% owned by these guys and 20% owned by those guys and they rent everything back. And, you know, it's tax efficient. But when the whole thing goes pear-shaped, there's no way to figure out what's going on. Lehman Brothers had $40 billion worth of clients' money just sitting in the company, immediately frozen when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. And a year later, Tony Lomas was making presentations in court to try to ask a judge to rule on how this money could be assigned. A year later, and there there was was agreement, there were four different schools of thought as to who might get the money and when. So you tied up all this money for people who basically, this is just like you you and I have a bank account. And these are are very big organisations. These are big companies, these are hedge funds, trying to make investments for this money, and it's suddenly been entombed in the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers. It's an incredibly complex, incredibly interconnected system. Now, there is no way that better indicators are going to fix this problem. How do we get a situation where Lehman Brothers, a future Lehman Brothers, could collapse and it wouldn't bring down the financial system? I mean, that is the question. And when you look at the experience Tony Lomas had going into Lehman Brothers, you start to realise what a tough question it is to answer. one point Tony Lomas made is he said, you know what would have been really helpful when we walked in here is if there'd been a binder somewhere that said, contingency plan. If this company ever needs to seek protection from its creditors, this is what to do. And there wasn't. There was no contingency plan. They had to make it all up as they went along. So trying to make finance safer, I think is fundamentally about trying to make this whole system less tightly coupled, less complex. You can force financial companies to have contingency plans, or you can strongly encourage them to have contingency plans. You can strongly encourage them to simplify, especially if the simplification is just for tax reasons. Now, I don't think you're ever going to get anywhere with box ticking. Um, You're not going to be able to formulate a series of rules to force these companies to simplify. But you can certainly, when as the regulator you're having a conversation with a bank, and you're trying to agree how much capital that bank should carry. So capital is basically this big sort of, cu- it's like driving around with this great big cushion on the front of your car. And you know, it doesn't look very good and it slows the car down. So people don't want to have big cushions. But the regulators have to tell them how big the cushion is, how much capital they have to absorb losses. So regulators can say, you know, we're not impressed with your contingency planning. We don't understand your corporate structure. We want a big capital cushion. On the other hand, if a bank says, well, look, here's the contingency plan. Um, this part is retail banking it's entirely separately owned, it's separately capitalised if we ever ran into trouble you could take that whole retail arm and sell it to somebody else and nobody would even know it had happened um, and we've got this bankruptcy plan here and this bankruptcy plan there if they could convince, convince the regulators there's a proper resolution mechanism for this, for this bank regulators say well okay you can take more risks that's okay, we're, we're happier with that so that is one way to try and force the system to be simpler uh, there are other things that we can do. Let's go back for a second to the, the dominoes example. Remember the, you know, the example of dominoes. Dominoes a quintessential example of a tightly coupled system. Now, it used to be very, very difficult to do big domino toppling uh, record attempts. So about 20 years ago there was one that was televised. It was about 8,000 dominoes. And what happened was a local camera crew came along to film the, this attempt and so the cameraman comes down and he wants one of those nice sort of tight focus shots so he comes down and his pen drops out of his pocket into the middle of the dominoes and sort of knocks them down from the middle and they all fall over which may have led to a tense conversation (laughs) Now, that doesn't happen uh, in domino toppling events anymore because they've discovered this technology. It's very simple. It's called a safety gate, automatic safety gate. So every few hundred dominoes, you've got a little plastic gate which you can trigger by remote control and the gate lifts up. But until those safety gates are lifted, you can only knock over a few hundred dominoes at a time. This was put into action a few years back when um, uh, there was a huge record attempt in the Netherlands. Something like... um, Gosh, six million dominoes. So they had this gigantic convention centre, and people had been spending weeks setting this thing up, and then a sparrow got into the convention centre <laughs> and starts dive bombing the dominoes. Now, of course, they shot the sparrow, and <laughs> then they had to deal with the animal rights activists who were trying to get in and finish the job the sparrow had started. But they lost a few dominoes. I mean, they lost 23,000 dominoes. But out of 6 million, that's not a lot, given that you've got this animal just coming in and just trying to destroy your domino. Because they had these safety gates, so they were very quickly able to, to fix the system. So the question is are there safety gates that we could institute in banking? And it, it, The answer is, well yes, kind of, it's not going to be easy because it turns out, who knew, banks are more complicated than dominoes. But it's possible. So one thing you can do is simply have more capital. You say, look, you need your safety cushions to be bigger. More of your balance sheet has to be funded by shareholders rather than by people who are lending you money. Less leverage. A lot of banks complain that this is going to be uh, absolutely deadly for them and it will hugely raise the cost of borrowing because shareholders want very high rates of return because they're taking lots of risk. So if you want lots and lots of capital in your bank, that means lots and lots of people are demanding a very high rate of return and that means you have to charge very high interest rates. So a big, that'll be a big problem. This makes approximately no sense to me and the reason it makes no sense to me is because why is it that the shareholders want that really really high rate of return? The reason the shareholders want that really high rate of return is because they're taking a lot of risk. Why are they taking a lot of risk? Well because a tiny number of shareholders and a huge amount of leverage and the capital cushion is very very thin if you had more shareholders each shareholder would take less risk now there's a famous theorem the Modigliani-Miller theorem the Modigliani-Miller theorem says basically it makes no difference whatsoever you could fund it entirely from equity and you'd still be absolutely fine I wouldn't go so far as to say this you know, theoretical result definitely holds I think that basic argument says you could have a lot more capital in banking they have a lot less effect on the cost of loans to ordinary people than you might expect. That's one thing. A second thing um, is far better bankruptcy plans linked to capital ratios as described. And you can, you can do this in an informal way as I've described. A third thing is actually to try to restructure banks. So my colleague at the Financial Times, John Kay, has proposals for so-called narrow banks. And I don't think this is a very easy thing to do. The basic idea is to carve out chunks of banks so that they are separately capitalized. They stand alone. They're where the small businesses get their loans. They're where ordinary people put their savings. and They're very safe and they're also legally separable. They can be owned by the biggest bunch of cowboys you like. They can be owned by any hedge fund, by anybody. But the bank itself is tightly regulated and very conservative and takes very few risks. Now if the city boys want to make their bets on commodity prices or whatever, that's fine. We've got no problem with that as long as they don't do it with the capital of this narrow bank. And if they go bankrupt, that's fine too. Just take the narrow bank and we put it somewhere else. We've decoupled the system. Remember the problem James Perot identified, tight coupling. This decouples the system. And I don't know if it's the answer. I certainly know that John Kay is asking the right question. And I think that there's one more thing that's very important, uh, and this is a more human story. There's one of the problems that goes wrong in these very complex systems is what the psychologist of, of industrial safety, James Reason, calls latent errors. So what are latent errors? So James Reason has, talks about three different kinds of human error. He talks about slips, mistakes, and violations. So a slip is when you do something and you immediately realize it was wrong. Um, you, uh, you, you poured water from the, ke- the kettle onto your tea bag and you, you realise you forgot to boil the kettle and it's just cold water and you, know, you, you immediately realise you made a mistake. So they, there are all kinds of systems designed to prevent slips and slips happen a lot in industrial accidents, they also happen in finance. So. Uh, when that uh, Japanese trader um, wanted to sell um, 6 million stocks at a price of 6 yen and ended up selling 6 stocks at a price of 6 million yen or something like that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's called a fat finger error. You immediately realise you made a mistake. So there's slips. What are mistakes? So mistakes are, are errors you commit because your mental model of the world is wrong. So when the controller of Piper Alpha switched on the secondary pump and the secondary pump didn't actually exist. That was a mistake. If he had known the situation, he would never have done that, but he was, he was mistaken about the situation of the world. And then there are violations. So violations are where you cut corners or maybe you per- perpetrate outright fraud. You do something you know is wrong, uh, you run a red light, uh, you drink drive, because you know you, you, whatever, you can't be bothered, you think you're probably be fine, you won't get caught. So slips, mistakes and violations. In the wake of an industrial accident, or in the wake of a financial crisis, we devote a tremendous amount of effort to distinguishing between mistakes and violations. Because mistakes happen, violations, people should be going to jail. But from the point of view of preventing the accident beforehand, or preventing the crisis, there's actually a lot in common between mistakes and violations. The reason is that both mistakes and violations can create these latent errors. Somebody gets something wrong, or deliberately cuts a corner does something wrong and the mistake lurks in the system for days for weeks possibly for years so when you've insured your portfolio of bonds with AIG and everybody has insured their portfolio of bonds with AIG and in precisely the situation where you would expect AIG to pay back the bonds it's clearly going to be impossible for AIG to make those payments that's a, that is a latent error you made a mistake and it is the latent error and it may never be discovered but you can bet that the the moment when you need the money is the moment when the error will be discovered. You have the same thing in industrial process accidents. So uh, Three Mile Island there were three valves each of which that were supposed to be separate they were supposed to be available to inject high pressure cold water into the reactor core to keep it cool. Trouble is each of those three valves was maintained by the same guy and the same guy you know, hadn't read his manual or whatever, and he left them all in the shut position when they should have been in the open position. They, they looked like three independent valves. They were actually three closely connected valves, and that was a latent error. And those valves may have been in the wrong position for weeks, for months. And the reason latent errors are so dangerous is because when I mean, you talk about these million-to-one chances and billion-to-one chances uh, in accidents, it's because it seems so unlikely that all the errors could line up at the same time. But, of course, if an error is is made and then just sits there and no one ever discovers it until the moment of crisis, clearly those million to one, billion to one calculations could go, absolutely go out of the window. So we need a way of discovering latent errors. We need a way of, sort of finding out that somebody left the valve in the wrong position, somebody made the wrong bet, somebody's risk control procedures are, are out of date or inappropriate. So who finds latent errors? Who discovers them? Well there's a big literature on this, Actually, that's a lie. There's a small literature on this, but it's a very interesting literature. And there's a very interesting paper by Luigi Zingales and, and, uh, and other researchers on who discovers financial frauds, which are a kind of latent error. They're a violation. So who discovers financial frauds? I'd like to think it's, it's journalists like me, but we don't usually do that. The regulators would probably like to think, well, it's them. It's the FSA. It's the Securities and Exchange Commission. But they don't discover financial frauds. Um, You might think it's the auditors. They perhaps should be the people who discover financial frauds, but it's not the auditors who do it. Occasionally, it's other regulators. So a water company committing financial fraud might be discovered by the water safety regulator. Sounds a bit weird. But the reason is the water safety regulator is interacting with employees all up and down the organisation on a day-to-day basis. And they may be in a much better position to figure out something's going wrong than uh, the financial regulator who's basically presented with accounts and told everything's fine and the accounts are lies. So it's sometimes non-financial regulators, but most often the people who discover frauds or other latent errors are employees. They're whistleblowers, of course, because they're the people on the front line see the mistakes being made. And a major theme of the book, not just in finance, but throughout the book, is the importance of the people who are there on the shop floor, at the coalface, literally at the front line, see the errors being committed. And we are not remotely supportive enough, I think, of whistleblowers. I mean, nobody likes a whistleblower, and many whistleblowers are basically just, you know, troublemakers, they have an axe to grind, there's no real problem. It's very hard to know exactly what to make of a whistleblower. But I think we can probably do better than we, than we did. Um, and if you take the example of Ray Dirks who was a whistleblower in the 1970s, who uncovered the equity funding fraud. This is the Enron of the day. So Ray Dirks was a stock analyst, and he discovered this problem with equity funding. He was afraid he might get killed. There was rumours of mafia involvement. Uh, What he did was, when he thought there was trouble, he called his clients and he said, you just need to sell your equity funding shares, because I'm really worried that there's something going on. When he was sure of his case, he called the SEC. And the SEC said, that's very interesting, you're guilty of insider trading. And they prosecuted him. And he spent 10 years defending himself before the Supreme Court finally uh, cleared him. Another example, of course, is um, Paul Moore of HBOS, the largest lender in the UK. So Paul Moore was the head of group regulatory risk at HBOS. And he said when he surveyed HBOS's risk practices, it was like taking a pressure cooker off. There was this huge explosion of concern from employees that HBOS was lending too much money. Uh, There were no concerns for risk, no concern for whether the money would be paid back, just volume, volume, volume. Well, Paul Moore was fired by HBOS. He was fired by Sir James Crosby. According to Paul Moore's account, with no appeal to due process, this this is disputed, but the fascinating thing is that the head of HBOS, Sir James Crosby, then went on to be number two at the Financial Services Authority, and was number two at the Financial Services Authority at roughly the time when HBOS had to be bought out by Lloyds and then Lloyds, HBOS together, had to accept 17 billion pounds from the taxpayer. So you know, it's hard to say whether a Whistleblower is making any sense or not, but I think we should probably give these people more protection and more of a hearing than we do, because there's so certainly nobody else who's in a position to uncover latent terrorists. So let me sum up. Where, where have we got? Finance is a, is a tightly coupled complex system, like big industrial processes. And to make it safer, you need to learn lessons from tightly coupled complex industrial processes. So number one, better indicators. The people in charge, whether they're the risk managers or the regulators, need the best possible information about where the risks are, where the exposures are. And At the moment Andy Haldane at the Bank of England tells me we are a million miles away from that. But they're trying and that's important. The second thing is to try to simplify this system. I I don't believe this idea that we necessarily should shrink finance, but I certainly think we should try and simplify it, especially since many of the complexities are only there for tax reasons. This won't be easy but we can do it. We could create a situation when Tony Lomas goes into a future Lehman Brothers and there is a big binder on the, the wall that says this is the contingency plan, we've thought about how to break this company up safely. The third thing is to decouple, to try to sort of create safe spaces in finance that are robust <laughs> even when Lehman Brothers or, uh, or AIG goes bankrupt, the, to make the system less interconnected. And the fourth thing is to listen to whistleblowers, because they are the ones who are uncovering hidden errors in the system. Just one more thought. As this book was going to press, um, the findings uh, of the inquiries uh, of Deepwater Horizon were being published. So Deepwater Horizon, um, as I'm sure you're aware, was this disaster on an oil rig. Uh, one of the engineers on Deepwater Horizon a guy called Mike Williams first realised there was a problem was an absolutely gigantic drilling rig goes a, m- a mile down he first realised there was a problem when all the engines on the rig started revving, they went into overdrive and the reason they'd gone into overdrive is because natural gas was being sucked into their air intakes So he pushed back from his table as his computer monitor exploded from the excess electricity being generated in the system uh, he was thrown across the room by a steel blast door that had been ripped off its hinges by an explosion woke up craw- crawled into the next room there was another explosion and another blast door knocked him over it was bleeding heavily from his head he finally gets to the the brink of Deepwater Horizon uh, which is covered in natural gas uh, the place stinks there are explosions going off everywhere he sees he's been left for dead People are getting away in boats and he sees that same ten storey drop that faced the men of Piper Alpha and with the last thought of his wife and family he jumps in and he survived. And When you look at what happened in Deepwater Horizon you just see the same lessons. Number one, safety systems fail. So at one point possible survivors from Deepwater Horizon were nearly killed because they found that their boat was attached to the rig by a safety line and nobody had a knife to cut the safety line because it's not safe to have a knife. (laughs) So safety systems interact in unpredictable ways. The second, latent errors matter. So there was a blowout preventer was supposed to prevent this explosion on the seabed and this oil and gas gushing up. The blowout preventer hadn't been checked for five years. There were three different reasons why it didn't work and no one had inspected it no one was trying to identify the latent terrorists. The third thing, whistleblowers, need to be identified. There were managers in BP and in Halliburton and in Transocean, the three operators involved, who were reporting concerns and we don't know why but for some reason uh, those concerns weren't acted upon. The system was tightly coupled. There was a control room with a trigger, it sound familiar? To activate the blowout preventer. But by the time it, it the blowout preventer could have been activated, the control room had been disabled. There was no contingency planning. Well, actually that's not quite true, there was some contingency planning. So, you remember the contingency plan for what happens if there's an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico? You had the walruses? Okay, so in the contingency plan that BP put together for what happens if there's an uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, there was this whole section about what we're going to do about the walruses. Okay, now it turns out that when there's an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, walruses who are not stupid react by instantly staying where they are in the Arctic Circle. <laughs> so it was quite clear that this thing had just been pulled off the shelf it was a safety plan that had been designed from the, maybe the North Sea or maybe drilling in Alaska or whatever and yeah that'll do. So there's no serious contingency planning. And the final thing is in tightly coupled complex systems accidents happen. You cannot plan on the basis of accidents can be prevented completely. They will happen. And the basic contingency planning uh, in the United States seemed to be it's fine to let these guys drill so close to the Louisiana coast because they probably won't spill any oil. And that, to me, sounds an awful lot like the attitude of many financial regulators before the financial crisis. So that's my thoughts for what they're worth on how to prevent financial meltdowns. Thank you very much for listening and I'm very happy to take questions. Do we, do we, have, we have microphones, yeah? So, hands up, there's a, there's a question over there, gentlemen. gentleman there. Let's give this gentleman a microphone as well?
2: Hi. Uh, thanks, that was a great speech. I was just wondering um, about, you've said very little about incentives, um, particularly with regards to how this financial crisis happened. When the oil rig you know, blows up, the people who are there to kind of make sure it doesn't happen will face quite disastrous consequences. The same doesn't happen to employees of Lehman Brothers, because they'll then go and find a job somewhere else. Um, so... In, in that way, it becomes slightly more, dif- slightly more difficult to make that comparison, you know, and as famously pe- people have known, there's, no, there's, there's not really been many convictions because of the financial crisis and all of these things, whereas if you have failed to, and if, if for some reason your maintenance records on your airplane isn't particularly well kept and it goes down, you face serious consequences.
1: You know, I think that's a very good point. I mean, what's the Alan Greenspan method of regulating nuclear power? Okay, well, um, if the nuclear power station melts down, the first guys who are going to get killed are the people operating it, and the largest uh, financial consequences will be felt by the operator. So we don't really need any regulation, do we? The market will sort it out. Um, You know, so there's... You're right, we need to think about the incentives. Um, The book is a book about trial and error. It's not a book about why the financial crisis happened. There's a chapter about the financial crisis and the chapter focuses on trial and error and in particular on error. But I think you're absolutely right. There was one incident um, that really drove this home to me which was when when I went to Hinkley Point and I talked to the head of safety at Hinkley Point, this nuclear power station, about safety procedures and he said, yeah, well, what we do is we regularly go and inspect other nuclear power stations. We get a team together and we... An international team. We go and visit nuclear power stations all over the world and see what they're doing, and we tell them if there's anything we see that uh, worries us. It could be operated by any company, and they send their inspectors here. So the industry there are there are regulators as well, but the industry has a peer review process, you know, and and they they're they're saying, well, actually, you know, we've discovered that kind of system doesn't work very well. We've had a couple of near misses. You might want to change that system. Um, It's inconceivable that Wall Street banks or city banks would be sending teams around to sort of examine each other's derivatives contracts. And something else happened while I was at Hinkley Point. I was told we have a peer review process inside Hinkley Point. Every single person takes safety training. Every person is responsible for the safety of this facility. So it doesn't matter who you are, you'd be the, the person answering the phone on the front desk, you have the responsibility to challenge anybody if you see something unsafe. And I said, well, yeah, okay, fine. That's easy to, easy to say. And I put on this um, hard hat and this jacket and uh, steel-toed uh, boots to go and look at the nuclear reactor. So we're in just some meeting room, and they've laid on a sandwich lunch. And this lady comes in pushing in the sandwiches and the tea. And I'm with the head of safety at Hinkley Point. And she says, those trainers in the corridor are a safety violation. Please move them. <laughs> Perfectly polite, extremely firm. And okay, you know, trainers, they're not going to blow up nuclear power station. But then I realised, yeah, there is a culture of dissent. And one of the themes I explore in the book is the ability of people lower down organisations to challenge people higher up organisations. And for various reasons, cultural and incentive based, that is extremely hard to imagine happening at a Wall Street firm. We, we gave a microphone to this, this chap. and other, Put your hands up other people who are interested. Okay, all right,
3: okay, I see you. Hi, Tim, uh, thanks again for a uh, great talk. Um, you've stressed all the way through uh, the benefits of simplicity, uh, and that seems to make a lot of sense. Do you think that the thousands and thousands of pages of the Dodd-Frank Act and whatever its UK counterpart ends up being will make the system set more simple?
1: Um, I think it's unlikely. Um, these are very hard problems. Uh, I, I have some hopes in the UK, I think John Vickers, who's in charge of the Vickers Commission uh, investigating banking is a smart guy. He's obviously paying attention to this problem of decoupling, um, but unintended consequences abound. W- I w- won't pretend that you can sort of just legislate and click your fingers and banks will become simpler. They may look simpler, they may not become simpler. So and I really think this is a tough problem. But you know, nuclear power is a tough problem. Industrial, you know, Making oil rigs safe is a tough problem. Uh, and I think these, incent- these sort of lessons are worth paying a bit more attention to than we currently do. I think it's interesting to note that a couple of people in U- the US are starting to pay attention. So uh, Rick Bookstabber, who advises the SEC, wrote a book, uh, A Demon of Our Own Design. He talked about Perot's work. This is about four years ago. Andrew Lowe at MIT, finance professor, testified before Congress he's been writing about this stuff for sort of 10 or 12 years he wants an accident investigation board the same way we have. if there's an aircraft crash it's investigated, he wants one for finance, so we're, we're making some progress, it's a tough problem so there's hands up again there was a the, the gentleman, gentleman at the back there um, and we've got a couple of guys at the front
2: Hi Tim. Uh, just been interested to hear your thoughts uh, just touch on whistleblowing on the recent provisions enacted in the US as part of the Dodd-Frank Act um, where the whistleblower receives a third of any fine that is ultimately levied on a firm as a result of that whistleblowing do you think that will actually drive the right behaviours? So
1: I, I think we know the answer to that so there's the, this study by uh, Luigi Zingales and others a- actually looks at uh, one sector of the US economy where Uh, whistleblowers do receive a big chunk of the the money saved. Basically, if you save money for the federal government, you get a percentage through your whistleblowing. Now, the the healthcare system is the system that gets most money from the federal government. So if you whistleblow in healthcare, you are probably due for a big payout. And it turns out whistleblowers in healthcare have an average payout, this is the mean payout, of $50 million. (laughs) And it turns out whistleblowing in healthcare is far more common than in other industries. So I think, yes, it will work. Um, We had a a couple of questions at the front here. There's a gentleman here, there's a gentleman here. So whoever gets the mic first. There we
4: go. This gentleman got the mic first. Uh, Two two points. One about auditors and the discussion, I think, in the States last week that basically auditors develop far too close and cosy a relationship with their clients and that they should be switched. Um, basically, uh, you have to have new auditors or different auditors after a number of years. Your views on that and secondly on regulators and what's happening here with regulation with the FSA being brought within the bank and in a sense many people feel being weakened. And how can you strengthen uh, regulation when basically, you know, so many of the, the banks and so on can afford to poach people who are former regulators, pay um, hey, them more?
1: Yeah. Uh I don't have a good answer to either of those questions. I think we have, we have a serious problem. Um, the the cosy relationship between auditors and firms is something that's been long recognised. The fact that the last time we had a real auditing scandal, one of the auditors disappeared, so we had even more market concentration, I don't think has really helped. Um, it would be great if we had, a, you know instead of a big four, we had a big 10, a big 15, um, but I don't know how to get there. And similarly... Uh, I don't think we can ever hope that regulators are going to be able to outmuscle the banks. Um, my hope is that we can get to a, a system of regulation that is less based on sort of this formal compliance, which just breeds complexity for the purposes of, of avoiding regulation, and more based on putting banks into broad categories based on, well, have you got a convincing restructuring plan. Are you systemically important? We've got our network map of interconnections and counterparty exposures. Are you systemically important? Do you have a bankruptcy plan? Are you simple enough for us to understand? We put you into a lower capital uh, bracket. But I I wouldn't pretend that any of this is an easy problem to solve. Gentlemen, here. Any, Any other questions further back as well? So there are a couple of questions there.
2: Well, th- well, also, thank you for that wonderful talk, Tim. But you used two terms which may. You've spoken a good bit about whistleblowers, and having known Ernie Fitzgerald, one of the all time great non
3: financial whistleblowers, it's very gratifying to hear you speaking about the importance of whistleblowers. But you
2: also briefly slipped in a, a different term culture of dissent. Whistleblowers and a culture of dissent the same thing, and if not, how are they different, and, and what is, how, do they f- how are the two important to us?
1: I think whistleblowing is a lot easier in a culture of dissent, but you're right, they're not, they're not logically identical. Dissent is really important. So, in, in my chapter on the war in Iraq, I look at the importance of dissent in making sensible decisions. So, Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defence at the time, had this surreal press conference at which, this is just after Thanksgiving 2005, which he refused to let the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the most senior military officer in the United States, refused to let him use the word insurgent to describe, well, insurgents, and refused to let him use the word insurgency to describe the insurgency the US Army was facing. So there's was a really Orwellian performance where you weren't even allowed to use the word necessary to describe the problem that you faced. Uh, and Rumsfeld was very ruthless about suppressing dissent and I look at that, you know, that, was, uh, look at that situation, look at the research on dissent and, and how dissent is very important for better decision making this is an absolutely classic study by Solomon Ash um, so Solomon Ash uh, th- this, is, this is sort of the, the conformity experiment So Solomon Ash takes a bunch of young men from Stanford and he gives them a, a piece of paper, so this piece of paper has got three lines on uh, different lengths fairly obviously different lengths A, B and C and this piece of paper has just a single line it's called the reference line and he says right I'm going to go around the table and I want you to tell me which of these three lines, A, B and C is the same length as the reference line this is not a difficult task okay? so he goes to the first guy the first guy says it's line A the second guy says it's line A the third guy says it's line A the fourth guy says it's line A now, the last guy is sitting there, and he can't believe his ears because... Well, maybe he can't believe his eyes, because it's obviously line B. And all these guys are saying it's line A. So what's happening? And, and they start... Solomon Ash observed that the people at the end of the line would show signs of stress, they'd start talking to themselves, they'd sort of say, oh, know what you're, what do you you know, my eyes must be fooling me. And, and they couldn't quite believe what, what was going on. So you're an A, 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 and you finally get to the guy at the end of the line, and the guy at the end of the line says A. And of course, the guy at the end of the line is the only person on which the experiment has been performed. Everybody else is an actor. So that showed he could, he could force people to conform simply by just saying, well, look, everybody else thinks A. So what do you think? Uh, now there was a very interesting follow-up that Ash did, where you go around, same setup, A A A A C, A A A A. The guy at the end knows it's B. So somebody's disagreed, but the, the guy who's disagreed is also wrong. So what does he do? Does he does he stick with the majority? Does he does he go with the with the minority, or what does he? And it turns out the guy at the end says B. He's happy to say what he believes to be the truth, even though there's nobody else in the room who agrees with him, because at least they don't agree with each other. And dissent is allowed. There's that other guy who said that other thing. And there's a wonderful follow-up to this. It wasn't done by Solomon Ash, Um, Where there's they this incredibly elaborate pantomime. where So the guy who's being experimented on is sitting in this room, and he's filling in this form beforehand. and Then somebody else comes into the room and bashes into him. And this guy's got these incredibly thick glasses on. They're actually manufactured out of bottle tops. And you c- c- clearly can't see anything. And so he fumbles around and sits down. Oh, I'm so terribly sorry that I bumped into you. I can't really see. Is this a form? I can't really fill in forms. I can't really see. Could you fill in this form for me? And you're in terrible trouble with my eyes. And so the guy who's being experimented on fills in this form. And then the, the experimenter comes into the room and says, well, is everything okay, gentlemen? And the guy who can't see says, well, is this a test of visual acuity? And the experimenter says, well, yes, it is. And the guy says, well, I can't really see. What's the a problem. If it's a test of visual acuity, the experimenter says, well, I'm sorry, you, um, you know, we need a certain number of people for our experiment, so even if you can't see, you just have to come along and do your best. So there's all this elaborate setup. Oh, of course, these, this guy's an actor. This elaborate setup. Then we go around the table, A, 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 Then <laughs> we go to Mr. Magoo, okay, he cannot see, it's been firmly established, he cannot see, he says C, A, 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 we go to the person who's actually being experimented on, and he says B. And that's why a culture of dissent is important. It's not just about bringing the right ideas to the surface. It doesn't have to be the right ideas. It can be ridiculous ideas, but if people feel able to express a different opinion from others, that's tremendously important in making good decisions rather than bad decisions. (laughs) Uh, Do we have the lady there? I know this is positive sexual discrimination, but this is the first lady to put her hand up. Sorry.
2: Um... Do you think that the Vickers Commission truly managed to understand the British banking system?
1: Gosh. Um, do you have any particular grumbles in mind with their provisional report, or you just—I mean—they just their general tone. They didn't.
4: I. I they, just, they in their general tone, they didn't really seem to really know what was going on.
1: <laughs> Oh, okay. So, um, so I should say the Vickers Commission is made up of, is made up of uh, my senior colleague Martin Wolf and one of the guys who taught me economics, John Vickers. And um, so, so I really hope they know what's going on. But, but I mean, you're right to ask the question. You're right to ask the question. Um, Something Martin said to me during the financial crisis is before, he, he's been extremely discreet about the commission, he hasn't told me anything of course but before the commission was announced, at one point Martin said to me, you know, I keep thinking to myself, so Martin's about 60, right, He's—you know and he's, he's one of the greats so I keep thinking to myself at some stage the grown-ups are going to come and sort it out, <laughs> and then I realise, we are the grown-ups and you know I think that humility is essential because, you know, actually of course they don't understand the banking system because nobody understands the banking system there are um, probably 10 billion distinct products and services in the London economy according to Eric Beinhocker at McKinsey who thinks hard about this, so if you wanted to if you wanted a checkout that could register all the different products and services in London, you'd need 10 billion distinct barcodes I mean, the, the, the economy is enormously sophisticated. The structure of a company like Lehman Brothers, as Tony Lomas discovered, is enormously sophisticated. Clearly, they don't get it completely, because nobody can. And that, I guess that's a key message of the book, which is we don't solve these problems in one go. You, we don't solve these problems by getting together a bunch of smart people. Uh, we're only going to solve them through trial and error. And that's why finance is so dangerous, because in finance, trial and error is so very difficult. And any measures that we can take that make trial and error, that make experimentation safer, I think are steps in the right direction.
3: Tim, I I think I know why you are feeling a little nervous about the Hinkley Point um, child-friendly office room that they have have in the little diagrams. About 25 years ago, I was counsel uh, for the hackers, the the Prestel hackers that got into the Duke of Edinburgh's Prestel mailbox. And in those days, Prestel, which is sort of a view data type system, like Teletext and those things, on on that was was a commercial failure, and all these front ends had been left over on the phone system, together with information such as how you could log on to these devices and get on, uh, and that's how the hackers got on there in the first place. Um, and this lovely easy to use front end which, was, uh, which you could just dial into as a hacker to get on those things actually controlled um, a few telephone exchanges and you could move a dial one way to one side and move a dial to another to another side perfectly, perfectly easily not knowing you were actually turning on and off a complete telephone exchange in the whole part of London because it was just designed to be
1: simple and child friendly okay, thank you <laughs> um, any, any other questions? It's, it's, let's take. There's a gentleman, gentleman there in a grey jacket who's had his hand up right from the start. Sorry. I nearly
4: forgot my question, but.
1: Uh. <laughs> think yeah. of a new question that's even yeah, better. That's right.
4: I mean, the question of culture. I think the complexity is the order of the day, and we will become more and more complex as we go further in the uh, future. And uh, in this system, uh, how do we ensure that uh, that the mistakes, that what you call the mistakes, are fewer, the accidents are fewer? And I think it really boils down <coughs> to this culture of dissent. That the, I mean, nobody would say that the people, some people did not know in Edge boss what was happening, what uh, what's happening in Royal Bank of Scotland. But nobody dared to uh, speak up against the, uh, uh, the bosses, the empire builders. So this culture of dissent is something that we need to what you call look at more carefully and this culture of descent is not something fixed it is if you go to different societies some have some have much less i mean, uh, the import, much less stronger uh, uh, culture of descent than others in other words there are some factors which can influence the culture of of, uh, of what you call descent, and um, yeah i would invite uh, Sure. you and others, how can we promote
1: a culture of dissent? Uh, Thank you. So, I mean, partly I think we promote a culture of dissent by talking about it, by, by recognising that it's okay, by teaching our children that it's okay to challenge the teacher. Um, we, but in the end, it often comes down to individual bravery. So every single chapter in this book has its own hero, whether it's Colonel H.R. McMaster who revolutionised American tactics in Iraq and was denied reinforcements and was told that he was out of line and was repeatedly passed over for promotion, Uh, or whether it's Archie Cochran, who was a pioneer for uh, randomised controlled trials, because he said this is the only way we can actually find out what works and what doesn't, who was so determined to to use trials to generate evidence, he even ran a randomised trial in a prisoner of war camp. He was a prisoner, Uh, he was dying, other people in the prisoner of war camp also dying. Uh, The relations with the guards were incredibly bad. They would shoot into the camp at random. At one point, one of the guards threw a grenade into the latrine block because he heard suspicious laughter. This is a terribly, terribly difficult situation. And they're all suffering from a condition called pitting edema, which is this horribly painful swelling up um, of the flesh under the skin. And he didn't know what was causing it. And he ran a randomized trial in a prisoner of war camp. I spoke to the cabinet office this lunchtime, and I said don't tell me that it's too difficult to run trials, it's too difficult to get evidence because you can do it if you want. This guy smuggled in vitamin C and Marmite because it contained vitamin B12, ran a randomized trial, went to the prison guards and said look, I've run the trial, it's clear all these prisoners are suffering from B12 deficiency. If you do not give them vitamin B12, they're gonna die went back to his quarters and just broke down and wept because he was sure they were all finished. And there was a young German doctor who said, look at this, look at that graph, look at that evidence. This is a war crime if you do not supply these vitamins to these people. And the next day, the vitamin B12 showed up. So it sometimes takes tremendous ingenuity and tremendous courage to try something new, to experiment, to produce the evidence, to defy people and say, this is the way we have to do it. And we're very lucky that as a society we have these people who are willing to take tremendous risks on our behalf. Because Certainly as a society as a whole, we are very happy to let others take the lead. I promised that I would finish at 8, so I'm going to finish now. I should say um, that there are books on sale outside, they're being sold by my local bookseller who has a young child. (laughs) (laughs) Think of the children. (laughs) As you purchase your signed first edition, with pleasure. Uh, But whether or not you want to do that, thanks for all the questions. Thank you very much for listening.